Hello and welcome to the Legal Aid Criminal Law Division podcast. I'm your host today, Kate Bleasel, solicitor with the Children's Legal Service, currently based at head office, and I have with me Felicity Graham, who is a barrister at the newly formed Black Chambers, and I must say has been a mentor and um, leader in my career, having given me a start when I was a junior criminal law solicitor at the Aboriginal Legal Service in Dubbo, which is where she worked for many years. Felicity, how are you today? It's great to be with you, Kate. Thanks for having me. Excellent. And the topic of today's podcast is prosecution disclosure and non-disclosure in criminal matters. Um, why are you the person to speak to us about this, Felicity? Kate, it's something that in my career as a criminal lawyer um, has been of concern to me, of great concern. Um, And really, it comes down to um, one simple phrase, you don't know what you don't know. I love it. That's great. And I mean, apart from that excellent introduction, you're also the author of a paper on this topic, aren't you? I am Stephen Lawrence, um, also of Black Chambers, and I uh, have co-authored a paper that was originally presented back in 2012 to the ALS Lawyers out west and has been recently updated and is now available in its updated form on the website criminalcpd.net.au. Excellent. And we will also ensure that our listeners have access to this paper and any other important things mentioned in this podcast through appropriate links placed at appropriate places. So, I mean, I guess we could all, as those of us who are criminal lawyers, um, talk about frustrating and infuriating times in our own practice when the prosecution, whether that be police prosecutors or uh, DPP lawyers or crowns, have refused or failed to provide very important information. Mm. There is, however, one very famous example or let's say infamous example of this Um, that is referred to in your paper, Felicity. That's the case of JB. Yeah, let's talk about the case of JB. So um, it's a really illuminating example Mm -hmm. of the extent of breaches of disclosure in um, New South Wales. So JB, he was 15 years of age. He um, was convicted following a trial um, of murder. That um, incident involved the stabbing during a fight between two groups of young males. The Crown case against JB relied really heavily on a confession that um, JB allegedly made to a, and I'm using air quotes here, support support person. Which he, the support person, later disclosed to police in an interesting uh, area of the law about whether what you say to a support person is confidential, which was also the subject of litigation, including in the Court of Appeal. It was. It was. So... Um, police had arranged this this support person because of JB's age, um, and when he was under arrest at the police station, he was, as you know from your children's court um, expertise, entitled and to expertise yes. and hotline expertise, <laughs> entitled to a support person. JB denied ever having made the said confession and denied stabbing or killing anyone, but um, at trial was convicted based largely on this evidence. It was really important evidence for the Crown, yeah. Yeah. So 
He appealed against his conviction and sentence that was unsuccessful. He um, applied for special leave to the High Court that was also unsuccessful. Um, but subsequently, he made an application to a judge of the Supreme Court um, seeking an inquiry into his conviction. And after certain things had been revealed, that um, application was successful and the whole case got then referred again to the CCA where um, they mm. entered um, an acquittal for JB and... Um, overturned the conviction. But what was this material that hadn't been disclosed in the JB case, Felicity? Yeah, so the critical information was that this support person, this witness um, to whom the, the said confession had been made, turned out to be uh, a police informer registered mm. with the police, someone who'd been charged with fraud um, and who had received a reduced penalty um, for that fraud uh, charge because of assistance that he had given to the authorities in testifying against JB. So it appeared that not only did the police fail to um, provide yeah. this information to the accused, but there was also um, a real sense that the breaches of disclosure had also um, gone so far as to... Um, affect the Crown Prosecutor and DPP instructing solicitor because um, they had held a conference with um, this relevant witness and served only in an edited version of typed notes of the conference that didn't refer to um, mm. the witness having been a police informer. Mm. Which is obviously very relevant to his credibility as the prime witness against JB and uh, for on that topic any benefit he received for being a witness. Mm, indeed, and that's what we're often talking about, I think, when we think about disclosure, mm. is what what other material beyond, say, a witness's um, asserted observations or mm. um, account about um, a criminal offence is relevant to their credibility that would shed light on whether or not they should ultimately be accepted yeah. um, at trial. So JB had served... Um, just to really sort of hit home at how, how serious these situations can be. JB had served six years and eight months of his sentence before being released on bail and then ultimately, as I said, acquitted by the CCA. Mm, that's an amazing and horrifying, horrifying case. Um, but this is, again, that was a case where the um, effect of that non-disclosure was so great and such an injustice to that um, young person However, there are so many examples um, from people's practices, perhaps sometimes on a smaller scale, whether it's just your domestic violence-related allegation and, and the credibility of that witness, whether matters are disclosed. Um, you have other examples from your practice as well, don't yeah, you? Yeah, one, one of the um, cases that I was involved in um, at the ALS out west, it was a case involving domestic violence allegations, a number... Um, of assault, intimidation, um, breach AVO type offences and, and being armed with um, a knife. And um, this was a case where after being arrested, the accused participated in an interview with police mm -hmm. and denied all the allegations against him. They'd, they'd all been put to him in the errors. And he said, no, none of that happened. Mm -hmm. um, and... The complainant in that case turned out to have a criminal record. Mm. 
What was um, really remarkable in, in this case was that um, the case had a really long history through the local court, multiple hearing mm. dates, multiple um, adjournments by the prosecution when the complainant um, didn't attend to mm. give evidence. Um, and the revelation of the criminal record came really, really late in the game um, mm. after the accused had been in custody for a long time. And did you have instructions on this, um, this, this issue with the complainant? Uh, to be honest, Kate, I can't remember in yeah. this occasion how um, mm. the revelation came um, about. I think that what happened was um, at a certain point in the proceedings, a request was made to the police in writing for um, her criminal record mm. um, in circumstances where her credibility was very much an issue. Yeah. Um, and it may have been a matter of instructions as well because mm. what was revealed um, in this case was that she had um, convictions for making a false allegation with the intention of subjecting um, this accused to an investigation um, for making false representations to the wow. police. Very relevant, isn't it? Very relevant. Yeah. Um, and in addition had been charged on other occasions with similar offences of mm. making false statements against that very same accused. Uh, so it was a case where um, not only did the prosecution fail to disclose this highly relevant material, but they also made um, arguments in court in um, her absence to the extent that she could be relied on in terms of her hearsay representation oh as so being a highly reliable yeah. um, representation under... Section 65 of the Evidence Act. So it was an extraordinary approach by the prosecution um, and it was one of the cases that triggered um, a, a broader advocacy approach from the ALS in terms of engaging with police and, and police prosecutors around their disclosure obligations. And we can talk about that yes. a bit further. Talk about, for example, trying to um, set a standard procedure for defence lawyers um, and whether that be, um, I guess it's more likely that they would take this approach for a, a serious matter that is going to the district court, but also a standard approach for people working in the local court and children's court about things they should request and actually trying to hold prosecutors to their disclosure obligations. Yeah. So, yes, we definitely want to move on, get on to that practical element um, as we discuss the issue, but I think what would, would be helpful is to hear... Um, or to hear a little bit more and get a snapshot of the law. Why, why are prosecutors required to disclose things? And um, your paper is certainly incredibly helpful on this point. So tell us, what's the law on this issue? Thanks, Kate. And um, for, those, for those who are interested in taking a deep dive into the case law and the legislation relating to disclosure obligations, I definitely recommend um, having a look at our paper. But let's, let's talk just a bit about a snapshot of what the law says about this duty. And the first point is really to acknowledge that whilst we often, in a practical sense and in the way we frame our thinking about disclosure obligations, think of it as a disclosure obligation owed by the prosecution to the accused. Mm -hmm. Which comes up in some parts of legislation, for example, service of a brief. Indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. The way that the common law um, has framed uh, this 
principle is that it's really a disclosure obligation that's owed by the prosecution to the court mm. as part of their um, overall um, duties as um, prosecutors. And criminal law um, doesn't recognise um, a duty of disclosure or discovery in the same sense as in civil litigation where um, that um, notion of discovery is, is mm. perhaps a bit broader. And I think one thing to take away from that is that doesn't mean or shouldn't be interpreted to mean that the accused is powerless to enforce the disclosure obligation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it's just about how you frame um, any application to enforce that obligation. And mm-hmm. just like courts will ensure the fairness of a trial, even in the absence of a um, right to a fair trial, mm-hmm. um, so two courts can ensure that there's appropriate disclosure and when there's insistence on it um, mm. from the accused, they can ensure that that happens. The second mm. thing to, I think, take away mm. is about this idea about it really being on the prosecutor to mm. to make sure that they comply with their disclosure obligations and we talk about this idea where it's not on the defence to go prompting the prosecutor or fossicking for the information. Mm. And you return to your tagline of, you know, how can we ask for things that we don't know about, like the case of JB and like this case of yours from Dubbo ALS. And also when you think about how dangerous it can be to Mm. ask a question when you don't know the answer. Mm. Um, And that's something that um, the High Court mentioned in the case of Gray and the Queen, which is a 2001 decision. That was um, a case not unlike JB's, where um, there was a witness um, in the case who um, gave evidence against the accused. He um, had received a letter of comfort. Mm. He... um, as could be gleaned from that letter of comfort, appeared to be someone who might have been criminally concerned. Mm. Um, None of that had been disclosed. Wow. And what the High Court said was, look, it's not up to um, the cross-examiner to ask the lucky, if extremely risky, question that might have um, (laughs) got the information out that way. It's really up to the prosecutor to make sure that they hand that over um, Mm. to the accused So the other thing um, I think we should just mention, or the other case that we should just mention for people to keep in their back pocket is Mallard and the Queen, Mm. 2005 High Court decision, Um, and particularly have a look at Justice Kirby's decision where he talks about the scope of the duty and he says, the prosecution may not suppress evidence in its possession or available to it, that's material to the contested issues in the trial. So how, how often, Kate, have you had that situation where you, you are rebuffed in your request for disclosure because they just say, well, I don't have the document? Yeah, well, or I can't be bothered to look it up on the police system, for example, <laughs> or I just can't be bothered to respond to your email. Yes, very often. Or yeah. just referred to, why don't you just subpoena it if you really want it? <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll let's talk more about subpoenas down the track, but... I think the real thing to get your head around here is, particularly in light of the electronic databases that the police keep where they have a lot of information that if that 
um, information is on that system, then it's available to the prosecution and mm. it's subject to disclosure obligations. And that applies even if, for example, we're not talking about a police prosecutor, we're talking about a DPP solicitor or a Crown, where they can't hide behind that distinction um, of not being the investigator themselves and therefore not saying they don't have access to certain things. Yeah, and so um, I like to call this the fallacy of the investigating police prosecutor distinction. Um, it's not uncommon, isn't it, for mm. for us to have that response from the Crown or even from the, the sergeant who's prosecuting in the children's court, well, I don't have that document and I'm not the investigating police officer. Um, but that's not a complete answer. It's obviously a practical response that they can't hand over something that they don't have, but it's not a complete um, answer to their duty of disclosure. And... Um, in Lipton there was mm. some acknowledgement of this that there may be a miscarriage of justice whether it's the police or the DPP who failed to disclose material relevant to an issue in criminal proceedings to the accused and here I'd also really um, highlight the Commonwealth DPP guidelines or statement on disclosure it's a really handy resource mm. and they um, also really squarely confront this idea that um, for the purpose of their disclosure policy and at common law there's no distinction between the prosecuting agency and the investigative agency and they are generally regarded as one and the same being the prosecution and so the disclosure obligation falls mm. fairly at, at their feet in, mm. um, in total. And that's, that's a great document. I really would refer our listeners to have a look at the Commonwealth DPP Statement on Disclosure, again, referred to in the paper and, and available online. Um, they're really providing clear guidance to their solicitors because this is, this is a difficult thing, particularly for a solicitor perhaps who is trying to do the right thing. Um, and the CDPP have really taken a good approach um, to providing some clear um, distinction on that. Yeah, and really useful, um, a really useful document because it also sets out some of the case law mm. um, that is um, relevant to their guidelines and their um, their mm. processes. So it's it's a really handy document. Mm. So what about um, statutory? Um, areas of the law. So we, we've talked about the common law, but what about? Any, is there any clear guidance in statute um, for the you know disclosure obligations? There is, Kate, and there there are a lot of um, statutory provisions that are relevant to this disclosure topic. Let's just mm. punch out a few of them. I think a lot of them will be, um, if not all of them, will be very familiar. Mm. So Section 15, Capital A of the Director of Public Prosecutions Act um, and anyone uh, receiving a brief of evidence, um, particularly um, in indictable matters or matters where the DPP is prosecuting, will be familiar with that disclosure certificate. Mm. And practical tip um, number one for the podcast, uh, let's let's make sure we get that certificate early. So mm. at reply to brief stage or, um, you know, at least before being committed for trial mm. because it's something that's an important part of the regime in terms of making sure that disclosure obligations are met. Or at so least have been said to be met. And so therefore indeed. we can go back and hold them to that certificate or criticise them in, in reference to that certificate. 
Yep. And so, so 15A sets up this um, disclosure obligation as between the investigating officers and the DPP. Um, and it also, after some amendments in 2013, um, applies to um, the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, formerly mm. PIC, and the New South Wales Crime Commission and ICAC. Mm. Um, and it basically requires the police officers or other investigating officers um, to disclose to the DPP all relevant information, documents or other things obtained during the investigation that might reasonably be expected to assist the case for the prosecution or for the accused person. Mm. That's the kind of um, starting point. And then I think we might just skip through then, um, Kate, to referring to some of the Criminal Procedure Act provisions. Mm -hmm. Which should be very familiar to lots of us in... Both, yeah, well, particularly in the local court or children's court, um, re referring to the requirement to serve a brief and, and other important um, e elements of a police case and what happens when those things aren't served and whether they can then be admitted into evidence. Yeah, sure, the consequences for mm. um, failure to comply with disclosing mm. the brief or, or particular items of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so whilst 15 capital A doesn't on its terms require the director to hand over what they received from the police, that's mm. where the Criminal Procedure Act provisions kick in. Um, so 141, 142, that's where mm. those provisions kind of slot into the regime. Mm. So I think that's probably... Mm. enough said about those statutory provisions except for one that I want to mention further which is part of the new regime um, of the early appropriate guilty plea regime that is <laughs> that's the one uh, so and, and so let's just this prosecution disclosure evidence is going to be very important in this new regime which I say new it started you know but um, because of the potential consequences of not entering early pleas or making um, appropriate offers to every charge uh, that is an alternative to the one laid um, with discount, you know, at a later stage in the district court. But so what particular parts of that legislation are applicable or particularly applicable, do you think? Well, I really want to draw attention to Section 70 and particularly Subsection 3A. And this is about the case conferences that are held. So this is after the DPP have done their charge certification and then you enter that phase mm. of trying to work out whether there's some way of entering an early and appropriate guilty plea um, or not. And um, what I think is really important about this new regime is that it expressly acknowledges that the case conferences um, have as an objective um, that they can be used to achieve the provision of additional material or other information which may be reasonably necessary to enable the accused person to determine whether or not to plead guilty mm. to an offence or, or more offences. And that we can use this case conference to actually say, you know, do you have this, do you have that, give it to us now. Exactly. So we can actually make a decision. So that we can give good advice and so our clients can give us good instructions yeah. and make a decision that um, ultimately is one if this new regime is is to um, achieve its purposes, one that's good for the administration of justice. Mm, that's right. Um, and so, speaking, we, we did go over um, 
the common law with, and mentioning some important cases. Are there any other cases um, that you think um, criminal solicitors uh, should really use in terms of trying to get disclosure um, from either police prosecutors or DPP solicitors? Well, I think we should also just talk about the distinction between the onus on the defence to disclose yeah. in um, indictable matters and the scenario in the local court or children's court. Mm. Um, you've heard of that case of Emily Salisbury, haven't you, Kate? Well, yes, I, I think I've heard of it mainly through reading your paper and, and discussions with you. <laughs> it's something I'd like to be a little bit more familiar with because I think it could be useful, though. Yeah, I think it could be really useful because um, that was a case where the matter originated in the local court and then went up on appeal to the Supreme Court. And so it's a 2016 decision of the Supreme Court where the issue was whether the accused should be required to disclose um, their expert material that they were going to rely on. Um, in the local court. In the local court, ah. yeah. So... They it came in for hearing. Counsel on that day said, "Well, look, um, they'll you know the matter will take some time because there's a defence um, witness to be called as an expert. And look, we're talking about a speeding offence here, so it's not <laughs> it's not um, the crime of the century. But there was a foreshadowed defence expert to be called, and." Um, Upon that being indicated, the prosecutor stood up and complained about not having been put on notice. Mm. Um, and so the magistrate ordered that the proceedings be adjourned and ordered that the accused serve on the prosecution in mm. advance of the next hearing, the expert evidence. And before that happened, the accused went up to the Supreme Court and said, we shouldn't have to do this. Yes. Where's the power? <laughs> That's absolutely right. And Justice Bellew said, there isn't. There is no power in the local court. In the is. local court. Yeah. It's different to the regime um, for indictable matters that mm. go to trial in the district and Supreme Courts where there's an express statutory power mm. um, which allows a court to require an accused to serve any expert report that they want mm. to rely on and um, from indictments presented or filed from mm. early November, that's going to be a mandatory requirement on yeah. defence. Perhaps um, the possible topic of a future podcast in this feed. I think so. It's a big topic. Okay. Um, but I think it's, it's something worth um, keeping handy because we all know it's not uncommon to be put on the spot and asked, what are the issues? What's mm. your defence? What evidence are you going to use? Um, in your defence and if we're in the local court or the children's court you're well um, well within your right to, to say no that's right but that said what about the situation where you know when you then um, come to call whatever that evidence is the court is asked by the prosecution for an adjournment or you know an ability to respond that's always a possibility that is yeah. sure and particularly if you're talking about expert evidence or some other evidence that might properly require a case in reply from the prosecution um, you, yeah you couldn't rule that out sure mm. so Kate before mm. we move on to talking about some of the practical <laughs> Um, tips and ideas and how you can bring about 
um, greater compliance with disclosure. Mm. I wanted to mention something else to our listeners. Oh, very good. And that is um, a survey that is online. This is an excellent idea because while criminal lawyers can happily grumble at the pub or, you know, tell war stories to each other, how are we going to actually achieve change, Felicity? Well... A few people have got together and decided that if we're going to have real reform and progress on this and um, get somewhere, Mm. then we need to be able to bring to light the real picture and perhaps, when that's done, expose a picture of a culture of non-disclosure in our system. We need stats here. We need stats. We need need the -the on-the-ground info. So there is an online disclosure survey um, that we will provide the link to when this podcast gets published. Mm. All right, Felicity, we've spoken about the law. We've spoken about the common law statutes, and people can look further into that in your paper. But let's get practical here. Let's talk about what people can actually do in their matters and, in fact, should be doing in their matters to get uh, the prosecution to disclose material. Let's do that, Kate. So, number one idea is make a written request. And so this could be as simple as an email to uh, your police prosecutor copying in the OIC or the DPP solicitor involved. Absolutely. Whilst we've underlined that it's firmly on the prosecution to ensure that they comply, in many cases we all know it's going to be up to us to do that Mm -hmm. Um, prompting to take that initial step to ensure that there is proper compliance. So Mm. what kind of things, Kate, do you think Mm. you'd be asking for in this initial request for disclosure? Well, from what we've already spoken about, a clear area, uh, fertile ground, so to speak, would be any criminal history or the bail reports for prosecution witnesses whose credibility is in question or whose evidence is in question or important that you wish to to check if there's relevant matters in their criminal histories. Yeah, that's going to be high on the list. So when you get the brief of evidence or even when you're taking instructions um, on the initial plea, um, you're going to have an idea about which witnesses um, are going to be challenged in terms of their credibility, which witnesses um, have a controversy uh, in relation to their evidence. So criminal records Mm -hmm. for those witnesses is going to be on your list. And with that in mind, a recent case of the Queen and Jenkin, um, Mm. a Supreme Court decision from this year, Justice Mm. Hamill, um, is on point and well worth the read. Mm. Um, That was um, a case where the accused was trying to get criminal records of prosecution witnesses. Um, they weren't initially um, disclosed, or not all of them were. Um, so they issued a subpoena for the records of 30 prosecution witnesses. Mm. The Commissioner of Police resisted compliance with the subpoena. What on a, a number of surprise. I know, (laughs) claiming um, that the privacy of the citizens to whom the criminal records related um, should trump their compliance. An argument raised in certain other contexts, for example, the CCTV from charge rooms as well occasionally. Mm, mm. So anyway, look, ultimately there was some informal access um, negotiated, but one of the things that Justice Hamill said um, is that at least 
some of the records that were finally obtained under the subpoena constituted material that should have been disclosed to the legal representatives of the accused without them having to seek it out. Mm. So criminal records of prosecution witnesses um, where the witness is expected to give evidence adverse to an accused or where evidence is expected to be controversial or where their conduct is impugned in relevant ways in other parts of the prosecution brief, Justice Hamill says the prosecution should disclose that witness's criminal history to the accused legal advisors and do so at an early stage. That's a good case to have on hand for our listeners when they're making these arguments, isn't it? Yeah, and the other thing um, that's um, really useful, I think, in, in a bit of the analysis there is what what might you expect to get in a criminal record? Now, obviously, there might be entries like we discussed from that ALS case where there were um, convictions or entries that go that went directly to the credibility and yeah. honesty of the witness in respect of the accused. And you might have other entries that reveal dishonesty that um, you expect could assist you in that way, although they might not relate to the accused. And just if an entry like that existed on a record, let's just remind our listeners that you can actually ask police for the fact sheet Absolutely. relevant to that entry. Absolutely. Know? And you should be if you get mm-hmm. entries like that. But Justice Hamill said, um, in response to one of the arguments that the Commissioner of Police made about how, um, well, just because someone's a drug dealer or mm-hmm. they've been in fights before doesn't mean that they should have their criminal record laid bare. Um, Justice Hamill said, well, look, there's a fundamental misconception here in terms of um, requiring the accused to establish that a criminal history has some particular and direct relevance to the issue of credibility. And one of the things that was revealed ultimately Mm. in that case was that one of the witnesses had been dealt with um, on a number of occasions under Section 32 of the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act and um, that their their psychiatric issues were Mm. long-term and were something that were then... um, relevant to their reliability and so we're not just talking about you know has the person been um, convicted of perjury before we're talking about um, information that um, on a broader view and on a, upon a full examination mm-hmm. could reveal um, fruitful cross-examination avenues or um, other and, matters. And when you say section 32 um, on a criminal record, we're really talking about we need the bail report, don't we? Not just a conviction report. Yeah, that's right. That wouldn't have shown up on a conviction report. Yeah, that's right. Hmm. So definitely, criminal record for witnesses um, where um, their evidence is in issue. But look, there are a bunch of other things that I would um, routinely ask for um, in this written request seeking um, proper compliance with disclosure. Cops entries. Mm. Um, they often reveal really critical parts of an investigation that are relevant to either the admissibility mm. of evidence or provide, for example, a written account of the first version mm. that a witness um, gives in complaint to the police that's not contained in their statement. And extra information that might not have been contained in the statement. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Or extra information about evidence that the police collected but that has been destroyed or mm. um, lost or other other matters relevant to the investigation. In that vein, police notebooks as well and notebook entries for all officers who responded or investigated the matter. Absolutely. Mm. Um, Custody management records for your client, which I've found particularly useful 
when um, making challenges to um, evidence that has been obtained on arrests like an ERISP or forensic procedures. And also I'd add in there, um, Kate, the custody management record for co-accused. Yes, that is, I've had a case where that became very relevant and it just so happened, again, that we were provided with the custody management record for a co-accused young people, two young people in custody together, uh, in fact, with a number of other young people. And what we managed to discover from um, those custody management records was that the same support person had been used for a bunch of co-accused all in custody together and, and that that support person really wasn't appropriate for a number of those young people um, but had been used regardless. And again, we wouldn't have known that if um, it, it, we hadn't happened across um, the custody management record for that co-accused. And unfortunately, I have to confess, I didn't request it, it just happened. I just happened upon it. So that's something to keep your mind open to. Yeah, look, it came up in another <laughs> one of my trial matters where co-accused had been in custody at the same time. Custody manager had obviously been at that computer in the charge room entering things into the um, electronic custody management records for each of the accused. And it seemed accidentally entered um, information relevant to my client in a co-accused yeah. um, custody management record. And it was only once you got all of them together and worked out, well, that couldn't pos- that phone call couldn't possibly have happened because he was in the heiress room or mm. you put it all together that you worked out... Um, what had really happened when the accused was in the charge room. And and on that, similarly, again, other police documents, what about the video copy of any ERISP conducted or interview conducted with your client? Absolutely. I mean, the transcript is just not good enough Mm. and it's not the evidence that's going to be adduced um, ultimately or should be. Um, I can recall a case from out west where um, it was only upon obtaining the video of the heiress that um, it was revealed that all of the exculpatory answers um, that the accused had given had been taken out of the transcript. Marked um, in, indistinct, perhaps. Just <laughs> not at all included. And it was only upon watching the video and comparing it carefully to the yeah. transcript that you could see that chunks of the, the mm. video were omitted so you must get that um and and interestingly enough i've come up against it with prosecutors who say in regards to the heiress video that oh we gave a copy of that to your client you know on the night of the heiress your client who was then later bail refused and his property you know moved around various um prisons or my client who was intoxicated and let go um and, and then therefore refusing to give another copy Mm, to you. mm, mm. So I guess what's important to remember there is that they only give the audio copy to a client on the evening. That's right. And not the video. And again, as Felicity said, it's not the audio copy or the transcript is not the evidence. The evidence is the video, uh, the actual um, piece of evidence conducted for the interview. Yeah, that's right. On videos, Kate, um, Mm. I thought I'd mention another case of mine that I had that involved cold-hit DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. And it comes up, I think, increasingly in our practice that um, Mm. we're getting these cold-hit cases. And so um, that's where, you know, your client's arrested after a match has already been made in the database. They take the DNA again because Mm. they take it for the fresh um, charge upon the arrest. Um, and often will serve you with all the material relevant to that. Um, that second taking of the DNA after police have been alerted to the match 
by a original taking of the DNA. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the case that I have in mind um, particularly is a case of Shane Knight from the Dubbo District Court. There is um, an unreported decision which we can make available to our listeners. Um, and that um, was really important in terms of getting the original um, forensic procedure video and forms um, for the DNA that was used to generate the cold hit because once we got that video and material it showed that the accused had been totally misinformed about the basis of the procedure being taken and the police had not complied with the informed consent procedures under the Mm. Forensic Procedure Act. And when we got the second video, um, Mm. although the form said, do you consent to the forensic procedure, tick yes, my Mm. client's signature was on it, when we got the second video um, and we watched it and he was asked, did he consent? He said, no, not really, man, no. Yeah, amazing. And, And I've had an exactly similar case where, again, the the second taking of the DNA appeared legal, but the video of the first taking of the DNA, which then created the the hit, the cold hit, showed a number of breaches of that legislation, which is um, quite um, uh, detailed in what it requires for either informed consent or even just um, an order, and what's required, particularly for Aboriginal people, in order for police to legally take that DNA. And I will just plug that Felicity Graham does have another paper on this topic that I believe is available at um, criminalcpd.net.adu on the forensic procedure legislation and and admissibility issues arising from non-compliance with it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that plug, Kate. Um, Look, let's just tick off a couple of other ideas we have about the things that you might ask for in this written request, whether witnesses are informants Mm. or other um, material relevant to their credibility. And and you um, recently discussed um, the idea of... Yes, well, I mean, um, someone, just when I was on the way to record this podcast, um, an unnamed police complaints lawyer, was how he sought to be referred to, suggested that um, if you have a case where police... Um, acting in the execution of their duty is the issue, for example, resist um, assault officer cases, that it would be relevant perhaps to require um, all records of disciplinary action for the officers involved. Um, And and how you would get that material in if there was relevant material is is another um, topic, perhaps with a tendency notice for bad behaviour, but certainly it would be very interesting to you um, as defence lawyer to have that material if you were trying to um, talk about the behaviour of, of officers in that context. Absolutely, Kate. I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And look, I think at the end of any kind of written request, you'd also include um, a, a general request to provide other material which could reasonably be seen as capable of assisting the defence case. Um, and again, we don't know what we don't know, so it's up exactly. to the police to make sure that they mm-hmm. provide everything that falls within that category. So, okay, so we've written an email, well phrased, or or a letter perhaps, um, to our prosecutor seeking disclosure of certain material, and and we've just done a very exhaustive list, and let's just reiterate that you don't have to request everything on that list. It will really, each case will turn on its facts. There's some great ideas, but let's say we've written that request, and, oh, surprise, it's refused, or it's simply not responded to. Um, what can we do at that point, Felicity? Look, Kate, it's pretty dispiriting when you get that response um, 
rebuffing your request saying go issue a subpoena go apply under GIPA for the oh, material um, you know or you know I'm the prosecutor but I don't have any of that material so that's the end of it but I think um, after initial an initial written request it's worth persisting um, with a follow-up um, perhaps at that point referring to the prosecution guidelines um, that are relevant or legal profession rules if um, yeah. they're opposite, referring um, perhaps if it's a police prosecutor involved to the standard operating procedures for police prosecutors and um, this was uh, something that was um, part of some agitation by the Aboriginal Legal Service back in 2014, particularly after some of those Mm. cases where breaches of disclosure had been revealed. Um, We we mentioned one of the cases earlier. And um, attached to the paper is an email directive that was sent out in 2014 Mm. by the then Director of Prosecuting Operations, Superintendent Ian Dixon, Mm. um, to all of the police prosecutors. And it's something that I think could be relied upon um, Mm. by lawyers um, in dealings with police on this issue. Mm. One thing I would say, though, is um, Superintendent Dixon um, refers to, and it seems that there persists within the New South Wales Police, the notion that there's no obligation on investigating officers to discover material that they have access to, for example, within the COPS database um, or other Mm. um, databases that are available to the police. But just remember, this approach is not consistent with what the common law says, which clearly requires police to disclose all material in their possession or available to them, which would include things like the COPS database or Mm. um, other records that the police have. Exactly. So so while um, so many of us are often faced with um, illegitimate reasons for refusal, Uh, to comply with disclosure. I I should briefly mention that there are some legitimate reasons that prosecutors can refuse to disclose things and and again referred to in Felicity's paper such as um, matters which is subject to the public interest immunity um, and again something often raised with subpoenas otherwise possibly sensitive evidence um, as defined in the Criminal Procedure Act um, matters that can't be um, uh, disclosed due to other parts of legislation such as the sexual assault communications um, style um, items referred to in the Criminal Procedure Act or um, uh, cases from the Children's Court or matters referred to in the Children's Court which are subject to non-publication orders. So there are legitimate reasons. Let's just say that often that will not be the reason that <laughs> prosecutors are not disclosing things to you, though it does exist and we we pay it lip service. (laughs) So, so, okay then, they've refused and and you're suggesting, Felicity, perhaps a follow-up email uh, as a first response, um, arguing perhaps a little bit with them, referring to the prosecution's guidelines or the SOPs for police prosecutors. Um, Let's let's say, what's the next step? And let's bear in mind that uh, perhaps a lot of our listeners or the majority of cases at legal aid are going to be in the local court or the children's court where we don't have the luxury of time and, and often our clients don't want us to delay matters either because their bail refused or they're on really strict bail with a curfew and they want us to get this case over yesterday um, and win. <laughs> so what do we do then with that time pressure? Yeah, so I think one of the things to remember with that time pressure and it's, it's ever-present mm-hmm. um, 
is you've got to make that first request early Mm -hmm. because you've got to give yourself a chance to have a backup plan if it doesn't bear the fruit straight away. Mm. Um, But if after making that request it's refused, um, where you can prove that disclosable material exists or Mm. where the prosecutor confirms that it does exist um, or is likely to exist or where the prosecutor refuses to confirm that it doesn't exist, um, (laughs) then perhaps the next step should be seeking some relief from the court Mm. and we'll talk about what might be there, either a stay or a court order for disclosure Mm. um, or, um, as is often the case, um, resorting to a subpoena for Mm. production to the Mm. Commissioner of Police. But can I say something about that here? (laughs) Of course, subpoenas may be issued to obtain documents or other material um, in circumstances where the prosecutor declines to obtain and disclose the material or claims to be unable or unwilling to do so. Or, for example, third-party material that's Mm. not in the possession of um, the prosecutor. But seeking the issue of a subpoena for material that should be disclosed in accordance with the prosecution's duty of disclosure, in my view, is arguably acquiescing to a second-rate system of criminal justice. (gasps) Mm. So whilst resort to that avenue may be necessary in some situations, it's really important to emphasise both to opponents and judicial officers on occasions um, that a subpoena is not an appropriate mechanism for an accused to obtain material which, according to law, Kate, yes. according to law, yes. should be disclosed to the accused from the outset. Mm, exactly. We must remember this while we then diligently issue our subpoenas in the face of injustice. <laughs> and that's where I think we, we, we come back to how do we shift the culture? Mm. How do we improve the system in a bigger way? Um, a broader way to make sure that Mm. um, disclosure obligations are met and maybe that Mm. um, kind of routine written request seeking disclosure and reminding Mm. prosecutors of their obligations is part of that. But if we're we're left with um, seeking a remedy from the court, there's mm. a few ideas in mind. You yeah. mentioned yeah, a stay. A stay yeah. interesting idea. Again, if your client will tolerate that, because often it will be just a temporary stay. Indeed. Until the material is disclosed. Indeed. And the case there to have a look at is um, the case of Lipton. Mm. Um, that was um, actually a case where um, there was a plea of guilty and it was... Um, a case where the accused was trying to get relevant material that would potentially assist him to mitigate his sentence. And that's obviously um, another um, whole category of material on which a prosecutor has um, disclosure obligations or for which they have disclosure obligations. So um, that's that's a potential avenue. Um, And there's been some discussion in another recent case of Gould about how exactly... Um, the terms of a temporary stay order um, might be framed, but mm. that's something to think about. But also, um, 
more broadly, and this is something that can even happen on the hearing day mm. um, and noting that getting, for example, criminal records or cops entries is really a matter of a police officer going to a computer yeah. and pressing yeah. pressing a couple of buttons and pressing print and even yeah, Justice exactly. Hamill referred to um, in Jenkin how it only took 10 minutes for the criminal <laughs> record to magically um, yeah. appear. So there's a lot of authority. Have a look in the paper about... Um, the power um, that a court has in this situation and the proposition that a court um, has an implied power to safeguard a fair trial mm. um, and order a prosecutor to disclose documents or other materials. So have a look at Brown, mm. Carter and Hayes um, and a few other cases that are referred to um, mm. in the paper. And, and what about costs? Well, if, if they just screw us around, you know, on hearing day or in lead up to hearing day, and we need to, you know, spend half a day looking at this material, waiting for it, really, parties should be considering costs, an application for costs against the prosecutor, even if it's just that period of time which was wasted. Yeah, totally. There's there's ample authority for the proposition that a temporary stay um, or even some other um, adjournment order can be conditional um, on the prosecution meeting costs that have been thrown away by the failure of disclosure. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Excellent. And, and I believe, uh, Felicity, that you had one last um, novel idea, um, and this is how new law is made and how um, we change um, the way we do things, about um, restraining your prosecutor if they fail to comply with their obligations. What, what can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah, well, we posit in our paper that one scenario where a prosecutor is refusing or failing to comply with their duty Um, that it may be possible to apply to restrain that prosecutor from appearing in the case. And I refer to um, a decision of MG and um, the Queen, a 2007 New South Wales CCA case, which dealt with restraining a prosecutor on a different um, Mm. basis, but um, the principle might still apply where Mm. they're failing to meet their ethical um, standards that mm. you might um, be able to restrain a, a particular prosecutor. But Jeez, I can certainly think of a few prosecutors I would like to restrain, and I bet our listeners can too. So that is really a, a very interesting idea that I think we should all consider. Um, so I think we might call it at that. There's so much to talk about. Any, any last words? There's so much to this, um, Kate, but I think we should wrap it up there. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Felicity Graham. And I refer all of our listeners to uh, Felicity's paper on this topic, as well as her many other papers. Um, And again, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Kate.